Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stefo Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. For today's book club, we wanted to talk about the legendary Bell Hooks and her 2015 work, Feminism is for Everybody, Passionate Politics. And we could do a whole episode on Bell Hooks and we probably definitely should. Yes. (laughs) This episode is already quite long because even though this book is a short, accessible (sighs) primer on feminism and why it's so important in terms of ending sexism and oppression, there's a lot to talk about. She packs a lot in not too long of a book. She has, she's one of those that just says a sentence and it's literal three-hour conversation yeah. and breaking down that sentence. Mm-hmm. It was it was a wonderful, wonderful read. It, and it was very like, it did bring up a lot of questions and thoughts and I got wrestling up in my brain about things, um, mm-hmm. which is good. I think that's an excellent sign of a yeah, great book. Excellent. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, This book touches on history, intersectionality, accessibility, education, reproductive rights, beauty, class politics, globalism, women in the workplace, race, gender, violence, feminist masculinity, feminist parenting, marriage and partnership, sexual agency, love and spirituality. And again, I think it's 120-ish pages. So she does, she accomplishes a lot. So that, and of course, this is one of her later books. So it is a 2015 book. So one of her later published books. So I think she's trying to, summarize it, but it's obvious, as you and I've talked about, what she's talking about is people being afraid and has been villainizing the word feminism. And so she yes. came back with like, this is the structure, this is the originality, kind of reminding us what yes. it is. Yes. And I think so many of us, you and I and our listeners, can and do relate to the struggle she's describing of encountering people who are like, but feminism means I hate men. Mm-hmm. Yes, and Bell Hooks is and has been doing the work in the world of feminism for over 40 years. She is a cultural critic and a feminist author who has written books such as Ain't I a Woman? Black Women and Feminism, All About Love, Bone Black, Rock My Soul, We Real Cool, Belonging, Where We Stand, Teaching to Transgress, Teaching Community, Outlaw Culture, and Real to Real, and that being real, R-E-E-L to Real R E A L. Yeah, I've realized I have missed out and not reading all of her stuff uh, previously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's jump in. So, in the forward to the new ed- edition of Feminism is for Everybody, Hooks explained her reason for writing it. She writes, From the very onset of my engagement with feminist practice, I was most excited about building a mass feminist movement, believing at 20 years old that it was feminist movement for social justice that could change all our lives. I worked to envision ways of bringing the meaning of feminist thinking and practice to a larger audience, to the masses. And while much of my work did reach folks who had not yet thought about feminism, especially Black folks, The fact that almost all my work was written while I was a student or a professor meant that I did not always reach the larger audience. Yeah, um, which I thought was really interesting. She talked about that, about how academia can be intimidating and not accessible. So she goes on describing her introduction to feminism, one I think that, yes, a lot of us can relate to. I came to full feminist consciousness as an undergraduate. My mind changed and altered by women's studies classes by the books we read. However, born into a family with six girls and one boy, I wanted my mama, my siblings, everyone I knew to be as intoxicated with feminist thinking as I was. The picture on the cover of this book is of me and my best friend from our first year of college. 
Race did not stand in the way of our bonding as it was shared working class issues that brought us together. We are in our late teens, almost 20 in this photo. When I became excited about feminism, April came with me to feminist conferences to learn what it was all about. After more than 40 years, we are still attending feminist lectures together. We learned the truism that sister is powerful by learning and experiencing life's journey together. Yeah, you know, I was thinking when she was talking about wanting everybody to know about the women's studies class. I remember my women's studies class. Uh, I loved it. I loved everything reading it. And I was really on point in uh, when I would write essays. To be fair, uh, I'm an Asian woman talking to, she was a white woman. So I feel like my perspective helped in that because we were coming and talking about intersectionality. I was It was too early 2000s when I was taking these classes. I don't know about you. Mm-hmm. But uh, there is an episode in Parks and Rec where Andy is yeah. trying to take a course and found himself really caught up in the women's studies class. Of course, it was very generic in what they were teaching sure. at that point in time. But I love that it kind of talked about how, oh, wow, this is something so new and new perspective that all of them were like really dumbfounded by it. And I feel like we've all had those moments when you see a different perspective and mm-hmm. are truly learning. And I feel like women's studies is definitely, but for some reason, when she was talking about her love for that, that's what popped in my head. It's like, yeah. oh, the awestruck. Anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so mm-hmm. Hooks also described another thing many of us can relate to, encountering confusion around what feminism is in their friend circles or sometimes outright hostility and wanting the tools to combat that. And Annie, you and I have talked about this so often to the point that it was our first episode together. Yeah. And yeah. trying to understand it. Yeah, it's absolutely, when she was talking about why she wrote this book, her experience in college, and this whole sentiment of people just, when she would tell them what she was interested in or what she was working in and kind of misunderstanding it, I I relate so strongly to that. And I know you do too, and I think a lot of listeners do. And I had a very similar experience. I also was kind of wary of the word feminist until I went to college. And even then I was like, I, I felt like I was one, but I was a little nervous about, like, announcing yeah. it. <laughs> and I feel like she also, and I know we're going to talk about this, helped redefine the terms of feminism with the intersectionality mm-hmm. of it all. Um, and in her own experiences in being a Black woman in academia, when it wasn't accepted for Black women to be in academia, especially when it comes to the writing world, which I just saw a recent article, I haven't read it, about uh, people of color and journalism and how it's been affecting them. So I found this very fascinating because it's so on point and she, as being one of the faces of intersectional feminism, as well as just a Black civil rights activist, I feel like really helped redefine what this wave is and why it's so important that we are able to redefine what we thought of it originally, the origination of feminism and white feminism and why it's so different, that I think it's important. And she is definitely a forefront of this movement. Yeah. But going on to what she writes, but feminist theories, that's the place where the questions stop. Instead, I tend to hear all about the evil of feminism and the bad feminists, how they hate men, how they are all lesbians, how they are taking all the jobs and making the world hard for white men who do not stand a chance, which is hilarious in itself. That's my own side note. (laughs) Again, going back to what she says, they do not even think about feminism as being about rights, about women gaining equal rights. 
When I talk about the feminism I know, up close and personal, they willingly listen. Although when our conversations end, they're quick to tell me I'm different, not like the real feminists who hate men, who are angry. Uh, I assure them I am as real and as radical as a feminist as one can be. And if they dare to come closer to feminism, they will see it not how they have imagined it. Sound familiar? Uh, And she kept waiting for books to appear that she could point to people. I think we've talked about this so many times. And then when it didn't, she took matters into her own hands, which is what we talk about so many phenomenal women who are making changes. Mm -hmm. And so to answer these questions in a concise manner, she wrote this book. And then y'all, she does a great job with it. An entreaty and an invitation to bring everyone closer to feminism. Um, And she is in her element, obviously. The years of experience in writing, teaching, and feminism is evident throughout. She describes the influence coming from a family that was mostly girls and women and how jarring it was for her to go to Stanford University and receiving this messaging that women were lesser. And for her, Black women were even lesser. And she talks about that as well. Yeah, and one of the delights of reading this book was remembering past books we've read in in this Sminty book club where Black women specifically have said like she was so important and influential right. to them. So it was cool to like see her influence kind of play out in other uh, Black women feminist thinkers specifically in this case. But just, yeah, because yeah. she's been involved in this world for so long and she's been involved in education for so long. Yeah. And she doesn't, like, I I don't know, because we know her as such a strong individual who is not shaken. Like, she knows what she knows, and she has lived through what she has known. And I think she's worked out so much of the questions from, again, her teaching and being in school and learning and, and just delving into it at a young age that she's come to a point that she really has a great foundation of what feminism should be and why it's important. And she does a great way of explaining it. Mm-hmm. Like, But then also for those of us who have been in this work thinking that we're feminists, still like revamping and opening our eyes to a new perspective of it. She, it's both of those things. Yeah, yeah. And she's she's great at laying out the the foundation because just like us, she starts with some basics, including her favorite definition of feminism. Quote, feminism is a movement to end sexism, sexist exploitation, and oppression. This is her definition that she first used in the book Feminist Theory from Margin to Center. And she favors it because it is clear, it is concise. Um, it makes it clear that feminism isn't about being anti-male, which is, yes, one of the biggest misconceptions and perhaps lies um, about feminism but instead that it's about sexism. Hooks is adamant that education and access to feminist materials is a huge part of the issue here too. That it's not that everyone is rejecting the feminist message, but they just don't know what the message is. As she points out, a feminist isn't born, they are made. You know, it kind of reminds me again, what you know, I had relayed about how I had let my parents know that I was mm-hmm. on a feminist podcast. And my dad's reaction was literally... So you want equal rights as men, right? And he, I was like, yeah. He goes, so like getting paid same for the same job. I was like, yeah. He goes, yeah, I'm good with that. Like <laughs> he, he got that understanding. I was like, this is right. not about, and where, you know, my mother was all off, like you're becoming a liberal and that means, and, and we're going to talk about this, that means you're abortion. You're going to have mm-hmm. 10 abortions. 
right. and live in sin, which is what kind of translated in my mom said. And, and abortion and uh, reproductive rights is absolutely a part of it, but that's not the end all of it, mm-hmm. as she ca- talks about often, and I think that's important. But the actual fact is, if one group of people are being held to this lower quality of life, literally they're not afforded the same quality, it's going to affect so many others, and this is for the all. The equality is for all. That is not about us stealing anything. It's about us all having room to have the same opportunities, which I think she does a great job in talking. Oh yeah, she's really good at that. Here's another quote. And that clarity helps us remember that all of us, female and male, have been socialized from birth on to accept sexist thought and action. As a consequence, females can be just as sexist as men. And while that does not excuse or justify male domination, it does mean that it would be naive and wrong-minded for feminist thinkers to see the movement as simplistically being for women against men. To end patriarchy, another way of naming the institutionalized sexism, we need to be clear that we are all participants in perpetuating sexism until we change our minds and hearts until we let go of sexist thought and action and replace it with feminist thought and action. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And here's another quote. Most men are disturbed by hatred and fear of women, by male violence against women, even the men who perpetuate this violence, but they fear letting go of the benefits. They are not certain what will happen to the world they know most intimately if patriarchy changes. So they find it easier to passively support male domination even when they know in their minds and hearts that it is wrong. Again and again, men will tell me they have no idea what it is feminists want. I believe them. I believe in their capacity to change and grow. And I believe that if they knew more about feminism, they would no longer fear it, for they would find in the feminist movement the hope of their own release from the bondage of patriarchy. Right. Yeah. There's so much to be said about that. Um, And she continues on saying, their misunderstanding of feminist politics reflects the reality that most folks learn about feminism from patriarchal mass media. The feminism they hear about uh, the most is portrayed by women who are primarily committed to gender equality, equal pay for equal work, and sometimes women and men sharing household chores and parenting. I like the sometimes. Mm -hmm. They say that these women are usually white and materially privileged. They know from mass media that women's liberation focuses on the freedom to have abortions, to be lesbians, to challenge rape and domestic violence. Um, And among these issues, masses of people agree with the idea of gender equity in the workplace, equal pay for equal work. Since our society continues to be primarily a Christian culture, masses of people continue to believe that God has ordained that women be subordinate to men in the domestic household. And I found yeah. that really interesting. Uh, she talking about Christianity. Man, that was a whole different conversation in my head. I was like, ooh. Yeah, I wanted to include that quote because we have had conversations about that and how that specifically um, interpretations of religion specifically impacted us as girls mm. and women and how we might have, how we internalized that. And I think that's very, very true. And I've heard that argument a lot. There's one person in particular I'm thinking of who almost gets angry that feminism or anything that's about like equality with women, achieving equality for women, she almost sees it as like a slight on God, like right. anti-religious. She gets really angry. I She recently, I ran into her and she was complaining to me about how 
somebody had a sticker on the back of their truck that said, um, this business is owned by women or something. And she was like, why does that matter? Like, that's not good. Why is she putting that out like it's a good thing? I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's that conversation again. Same thing uh, in that, like, it goes deeper. Like, black women, oh my God, yep. what? Why do you yep. have to advertise that? I'm going to not, like, it's, yeah. it's this labeling that they don't like, even though this the labeling is what it's taking to recognize that there's something wrong and corrupt in the system. But yeah, again, and we're going to talk about it more, but she's the one um, that's really had me thinking about colonization and Christianity and how they go hand in hand and that the reason why this is so detrimental to a culture uh, who have been colonized in the name of God. And we don't think about, I don't, I have never really thought about it. I've always thought of colonization as a political aspect, but looking, and of course, we can go into the deeper theory that religion is political uh, to a certain extent and has been used as an excuse. Uh, the name of God has been used as as a political exercise, uh, <laughs> going down a rabbit hole, I'm going to stop. <laughs> but, but like she really is talking about that, and Christianity in itself is a way of colonizing in that level. And if we look at the deeper parts of the patriarchal system, that is beyond that. And of course, this also goes into the whole narrative of feminist, patriarch, misogyny. Those are your words. Heteronormative, you know, are very feminist words. And they are, but they're important into what it means. Maybe it's too clinical and we shouldn't say it like that to bring it down a little bit into layman's terms, I guess, if you're not in the feminist world. But I I find that interesting that there is such a correlation, this deep correlation that all ties together and how harmful it is. But we've been taught that that's the only way society can work for us to function mm-hmm. as moral citizens. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, she's got me thinking, y'all. She's got me thinking. Yeah. <laughs> More. The book opens with some history of modern American feminism, too. Uh, as she, she writes, Early on, most feminist activists, a majority of whom are white or were white, had their consciousness raised about the nature of male domination when they were working in anti-classist and anti-racist settings with men who were telling the world about the importance of freedom while subordinating the women in their ranks. Yes. Whether it was white women working on behalf of socialism, black women working on behalf of civil rights and black liberation, or Native American women working for indigenous rights, it was clear that men wanted to lead and they wanted women to follow. Participating in these radical freedom struggles awakened the spirit of rebellion and resistance in progressive females and led them towards contemporary women's liberation. And I'm not going to lie, this had me thinking about Deb Holland, Representative Deb Holland who is our first Native American indigenous woman to be a secretary of interior, secretary of anything, essentially, in the office, one of the first uh, women, Native American women, to be in office. Such important thing that she just did recently, Mm -hmm. and how that we talked about her in our Women Around the World, and how there were all these little Native American indigenous committees that were ran by white men. (laughs) Like, I I was like, wait... What is happening? No one sees how this this is really problematic. Yeah, yeah. And this is, I'm so glad that Hooks touched on this because it is such an important conversation. We've seen it time and time again of these like exclusionary movements and why that's hindering everybody, that's holding everybody back. But uh, in this way, while early feminists may have been anti-male, 
they progressed, realizing that women could be sexist too, and that systems like class and race were also huge in this conversation. Hooks details how, even from the start, the movement was polarized in a lot of ways. Um, quote, even though individual Black women were active in contemporary feminist movement from its inception, they were not the individuals who became the stars of the movement, who attracted the attention of mass media. Often individual Black women active in feminist movement were revolutionary feminists like many white lesbians. They were already at odds with reformist feminists who resolutely wanted to project a vision of the movement as being solely about women gaining equality with men in the existing system. Even before race became a talked about issue in feminist circles, it was clear to black women and to their revolutionary allies in struggle that they were never going to have equality within the existing white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. Here's another quote. We can never forget that white women began to assert their need for freedom after civil rights, just at the point when racial discrimination was ending and black people, especially black males, might have attained equality in the workforce with white men. Reformist feminist thinking focused primarily on equality with men in the workforce overshadowed the original radical foundations of contemporary feminism, which called for reform as well as overall restructuring of society so that our nation would be fundamentally anti-sexist. Right. I love that she's just calling out the fact that it's an intersectional thing, and it should have been since the beginning of voting rights, which we talked about before. Mm -hmm. But the suffragette movement, which happened after the voting rights were given to Black men, to be mm -hmm. fair, not really, but kind of um, right. in itself. But it took that moment to for white women to be like, wait, what? Right. And then be like, but not, not anybody else, just white women. White women should have had these rights to begin with. Yeah. Sorry, I'm not trying to mock white women in the suffragette movement, but you know, this is how it yeah. goes in my head. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. But I found that interesting that she was like, she was, I mean, again, Bell Hooks is known, has been talking about it, has been a part of this, talking about being Ain't I a Black Woman, that book and what she was doing with it and why it was important to her to have this book, but the fact that it goes the anti-sexist and anti-racist uh, movement has to be hand in hand, but the only people who've been fighting it since that point in time have been Black women, point blank. Yes, yes. And I really, really appreciated how she laid out the history because it can get, as she said, like the academic level can be really intimidating and confusing. And there is a lot, like, don't get me wrong, there is a lot, but I like how she just kind of laid it out and was like, we can't ignore this. Mm -hmm. Like, we can't ignore that this happened because of this. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it, like the suffragette movement and then this after the civil rights was like white women being, oh, wait, mm -hmm. <laughs> this, this is not right. And then excluding people who had been doing the work all along mm -hmm. and very much focusing on the workplace right. aspect right. of it which is key. So Hooks touches on something called lifestyle feminism in which well-off, typically white feminists were able to achieve workplace equality with men while depending on the work of lower-paid marginalized folks, often women, and in this way, could almost live a double life. Um, here's one example of lifestyle feminism are essentially choosing when and where you want to be a feminist. Quote, if feminism is a movement to end sexist oppression and depriving females of reproductive rights is a form of sexist oppression, then one cannot be anti-choice and be feminist. A woman can insist she would never choose to have an abortion while affirming her support of the right of women to choose and still be an advocate of feminist policies. She cannot be anti-abortion and an advocate of feminism. Yeah. Oh, and that point, when she was saying that, I was like, oh, yes, absolutely. Like, when she was talking about being 
you can say you would not have an abortion yourself. That's fine. Like if you chose mm-hmm. not to have an abortion, that's on you. But that right to have that choice is the conversation and saying that you are anti-choice because you are quote unquote pro-life slash pro-birth. That means you're not a feminist. You can't do this. And I thought the same thing about like excluding trans women and so many mm-hmm. of the TERFs who are like, I'm feminist. No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. Right. And I'm going to say that outright. I don't care. I don't care. Y'all can argue with me all day. If you're a TERF, if you're against trans women, you are not a feminist. Like it, when it comes down to it. And if, if mm-hmm. we're laying it out as Bell Hooks says, and it's absolutely true. If you truly want to be a feminist where we have equitable rights for all women, all women of color, all of that, any woman in general, and trans women are women. That's how we're leaving that. Then Mm -hmm. you cannot be against something that would be for the equity of a woman and say you're Mm -hmm. a feminist. Like that's just, it cannot be. And and her point in that was so driven home to me in that that moment of like, yes, we've talked about it so much, but she put it in such a plain way in something that is very, very controversial within women. And that's, I think this is one of the biggest dividers now too, trans women and abortion are two of the biggest dividers yeah. when it comes to within the feminist circle as well. Mm-hmm. And that might be why they don't want to call them feminists. You know, like all of these things, it's like yeah. you have to have this conversation. And also we don't talk about enough about uh, being sterilized against their will. And the fact yeah. that that is also part yep. of the pro-choice movement, like that we can have that right to have children. You do not yes. have that right to take it away from me. Stop it. Yes. And Hooks t- touches on that. I think we have a quote from it a bit later on. And I I love that point that reproductive rights is not just abortion. Right. It's all of these other things. Yes. And I also really love this point of, I think we could expound on this ad nauseum, but of like, these well-off white women typically being a feminist when it's easy to be a feminist, but right. they're being supported by marginalized workers who are probably women of color. Right. But then when it, like, push comes to shove, they're not helping all women. Yeah. Again, it is, it's easy to be a feminist when your movement and what you want specifically to define the movement is at the highlight mm-hmm. of it all. Like, it, it defines yep. it for everything else and ignores everything else underneath it. Yes. Yeah, so I I love that she made that point. Another growing pain Hooks discusses is the fact that in the 70s and 80s, many women didn't stop to examine their own internalized sexism, but instead believed that fighting against male domination was enough. That because they were women, that was enough without instead doing the consciousness raising that she talks about, which is huge. I think that's so important. Uh, We just, you know, as she said, we were raised in this system. We have so many internalized sexist things. I mean, you and I have talked about when people come on to our show and we give them a heads up, hey, we are a feminist show, so we need you Mm -hmm. to relay how your show or what your conversation topic is about feminism. We need need to get into that. And we've had the answer more than once, well, we're women. And that's the end of it. And we sit there like, "Uh, sure, sure, you're women creating content. That doesn't make it feminist. Like we really have to sit there and stare and not be, try not to be impolite in that. Yo, that's that's not what feminism means. Being a woman does not automatically, just because it's created by a woman, we know. Mm-hmm. We've seen toxic, toxic masculinity, toxic patriarchal misogyny from women. So Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Like we're happy to support women who are making content that we think is 
not harmful content. (laughs) Always. But it doesn't necessarily mean (laughs) feminism automatically. (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't automatically, like, quote it. But I really, I thought that was interesting. It was like, just being a woman is enough. No. Just being someone who supports it is enough. No. Like, do we want to run ourselves into the ground? No. But just because you don't do something or you are passively doing something does not necessarily give you that title either. Exactly. Exactly. And Hooks detailed how powerful it was being at Stanford during the beginnings of our modern feminist movement. And this was a university that she was encouraged to attend by a female teacher um, and how she took her first women's studies courses there and how that really did impact her. But also, yes, just encountering all of this like sexism and racism and kind of being like, wait. (laughs) Yeah. And then I love this phrase when she talked about the power of sisterhood and how that sentiment was so strong and the whole, the enemy within internalized uh, sexism, the enemy within. And I thought that was such a great point because, yeah, she talked about how excited she was. And I kind of think about the Women's March. I wasn't a part of it. I had to work, but I remember watching it and really feeling like maybe there's hope in the world. And then we find out that later on that the women who are in charge of it weren't really listening to other women and we needed to talk about that again, which is very familiar to the 70s, yep. 80s movements uh, as well, where we needed to have a breakdown of what was happening. But I, yeah, the power of sisterhood, when we talk about sisterhood, because so, like I will say of, above anything else, I always considered myself a feminist, even though I have a lot of internalized misogyny and I definitely had a lot of racist even to myself, I was racist against myself as an Asian person because I would desperately wanted to be white because mm-hmm. I thought that was the only way to be. That's the best way to be, which is the white supremacist narrative that's been fed into us for so long. But the one thing I knew and the one thing I trusted, like through years of being abused, through years of going through trauma, is that I could trust my girls, like whether, so I always had one or two beyond my family, beyond my parents, beyond uh, anything else, beyond relationships, like romantic relationships with men, my my friends, my friends were my core. And that made me always think I would always trust women more, even when we had, you know, the drama that you have growing up where sure. someone might cheat on someone, who did you, and I would always get so angry when the girls would get mad at each other if it was a cheating dude. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why are you mad at each other? This is his fault. He's right. the main culprit here. I'm confused. <laughs> yeah. And that type of narrative knew that made me feel like, oh, I would definitely lean toward being feminist, even though I didn't want to be called feminist in high school because, right. oh no, uh, as mm-hmm. again, w- living in a white, very like white supremacist, male dominated Christian Southern Baptist world, that was a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I still knew I leaned towards that because those are the people that I trusted. And even to this day, my closest relationships are my girls, are my friends in this world, you and, and uh, Caroline and Dominique, like I was just naming our friends, Courtney, all of them. Those That is my core of people that I trust mm-hmm. and I will always trust outside of anything else. Like that to me, that sentiment means so much to come together and to be together as one, but also calling each other out because like learning yeah. from you and Caroline and, and from all this, like having people call each other out for our internalized racism, internalized misogyny is necessary. Yeah. But it is, it's a huge enemy that you have to unpack. It's that, it's that demon that you don't want to face as a feminist. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's something that unless you do 
are have access to unfortunately hard to access often feminist materials or a good friend that will call you out. You might not know you've got this demon inside of you. Right. Um, until someone is like, hi, no. <laughs> That's not right. Maybe you want to rethink this. Um, and going back mm-hmm. to rethinking this, uh, Hooks goes on to write, as long as women are using class or race power to dominate other women, feminist sisterhood cannot be fully realized. Uh, huge point. Cannot be fully realized. As more women begin to opportunistically lay claim to feminism in the 80s without undergoing the feminist consciousness raising, good term, that uh, would have enabled them to divest of their sexism. The patriarchal assumption that the powerful should rule over the weak informed their relations to other women. Y'all, that was a long sentence for me, and it's such a deep sentence. Yeah. She goes on to say, as women, particularly previously disenfranchised privileged white women, began to acquire class power without divesting of their internalized sexism, divisions between women intensified. When women of color critiqued the racism within the society as a whole and called attention to the ways that racism had shaped and informed feminist theory and practice, many white women simply turned their backs on the vision of sisterhood, closing their mind and their hearts. And that was equally true when it came to the classism among women. And yeah, I think that was a narrative that we still, obviously this was 2015 when she wrote this, but that was a narrative we had to talk about last year in 2020, as we were talking about, this is white feminism and this is why white feminism is dangerous. Mm -hmm. And of course she was much nicer than we are when it comes (laughs) to calling ourselves out. Because I say the same thing when it comes to uh, race and when we talk about Asian people versus black people, not versus, but in, in the comparison in that conversation of like, who is truly being disenfranchised here, and then how are we pitted against each other in the anti-Black movement that has happened within Asian culture as well, and we need to face that, that there is that level. But this conversation about white feminists, it could be safe for Asian feminists, you know, when it comes to what we're looking at and who is truly the one that has been stripped of any power and of any voice. And man, like she talks, she, again, she's nicer than me, I think, in, in the way she frames it. Yeah. It's so truthful though, that the idea that they they got what they wanted, let us go into the workplace mm-hmm. if we want to, forgetting mm-hmm. that there are other women who've been forced into the workplace without getting any pay or any like real kind of justice or any kind of equality in, in the working field that are already having to be a part of and they're being pushed into, why are we talking about that? It doesn't affect the privileged, the pretty, the pretty face of feminism. Right. And it's very like, yeah, I like how she uses the line, like, in their hearts, like closing their minds and their hearts. Because it's very, oh, this wasn't impacting me before, but now it's impacting me. So I'm going to get involved. And then I kind of take the credit. And then you get what you want, even though what you want is still yeah, very much like a man's world. All right. right, I'll let you have that, sweetheart. And then like, okay, I'm good. Right. And forgetting like all the people who have been working on it. Right. All of the women of color and especially black women who have been working on it and still don't have the rights right. that you do. Right. 
It is. Yeah. And she continues to write, since masses of young females know little about feminism and many falsely assume that sexism is no longer the problem, feminist education for critical consciousness must be continuous. Older feminist thinkers cannot assume that young females will just acquire knowledge of feminism along the way to adulthood. They require guidance. Overall, women in our society are forgetting the value and power of sisterhood. Renewed feminists movement must once again raise the banner high to proclaim a new sisterhood is powerful. Um, and I'm not going to lie, this made me think about my niece, mm-hmm. who I love very dearly if you're listening to this. I love you, Gracie. <laughs> I remember as she was graduating high school, she was talking about all of these things and she had very similar statements like I did in a different manner about feminism. And she definitely was like, I would never call myself a feminist. All of these things because these young group of kids have become so jaded by what they think is feminism once again, Mm -hmm. as well as just, you know, I'm assuming that she knows because she, what the things that she wants to do, I was like, you can't do that without feminism. You couldn't have this without feminism, but surely, you know, and then seeing Mm -hmm. her like five or six years later and seeing where she's come to understanding what it is and having her consciousness raised as uh, Hooks would say and seeing her come to this point but it really did like wow I assumed you had so much access to knowledge that you would know but when it comes Mm -hmm. to what you learn within your own culture we have and we still have this whole girl versus girl the I'm not like other girls trope that has gotten so heavy and so deep especially in mainstream movies all these romance things that, that really play and perpetuate the stereotype, forgetting that, yeah, sisterhood is powerful. Yeah. And turning women against women is not helping women. Right. <laughs> this whole, right. like, oh, she can't do it, but I can. I can survive in this mm-hmm. man's world as if it's a competition. And it's just like, no. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but, oh, yes, demanding respect for women's academic work. Importance of this whole support group, places to talk and education. But again, the danger of presenting only in an academic setting, like we talked about, earlier. It is. This is where I have a hard time where my family, uh, that education is ruining society, you know? Right. Yep. Yep. You go, you go to that college and you come back all liberal. Yeah. (laughs) And that is exactly what they think. And I'm like, but how about you take the other fact that we've actually started critically thinking beyond just being told what to think. And now we come to this and realize this doesn't make sense. This is mm-hmm. not the betterment. And instead, they're just like, that's education. You got, you bought into that. You bought into that. Like, mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That's not, okay. Okay. But yes. the fact that we do need to put it in the language that Hooks is lo- doing it and, and unfortunately making it more palatable, um, which mm-hmm. I know black women are tired of having to do for so sure. long. Um, she still did it. And she writes, if we do not work to create a mass-based movement which offers feminist education to everyone, Females and males, feminist theories and practice will always be undermined by the negative information produced in most mainstream media. The citizens of this nation cannot know the positive contributions feminist movements has made to all our lives if we do not highlight these gains. I mean, just simply put. Simply put. I mean, come on. Yeah, that's exactly what you were talking about. 
Um, and then, as we mentioned, Hooks talks about the sexual revolution, free love, and reproductive rights. And here's a quote I really loved about that. In retrospect, it is evident that highlighting abortion rather than reproductive rights as a whole reflected the class biases of the women who were at the forefront of the movement. While the issue of abortion was and remains relevant to all women, there were other reproductive issues that were just as vital, which needed attention and might have served to galvanize masses. These issues ranged from basic sex education, prenatal care, preventative health care that would help females understand how their bodies worked, to forced sterilization, unnecessary cesareans and or hysterectomies, and the medical complications they left in their wake. Of all these issues, individual white women with class privilege identified most intimately with the pain of unwanted pregnancy, and they highlighted the abortion issue. They were not by any means the only group in need of access to safe legal abortions. As already stated, they were far more likely to have the means to acquire Require an abortion than poor and working class women. In those days, poor women, black women included, often sought illegal abortions. The right to have an abortion was not a white women only issue. It was simply not the only or even the most important reproductive concern for masses of American women. Yeah. And again, I thought that was such a that's such a good point, and it's so important to remember. I mean, and we're not even mentioning about the deaths of many of the Black women uh, uh, during pregnancy, during giving birth, and how mm-hmm. that is so impacted. If we are not given correct reproductive care, then we are not able to save this women. We're literally killing women who are trying to have children, uh, you know, all of these things. Or those who uh, we have talked about and we have seen where medically induced abortions, late-term abortions, as people really want to uh, emphasize, which oftentimes are done because of medical necessity, not because of want, that many of these women are desperately to have children but can't give birth to a child because of whatever health issue and so therefore have to have an abortion to keep themselves safe as well as maybe sometimes the fetus. And oftentimes they have to do a, an abortion, mm-hmm. but having to get having a late term abortion to save their lives, but it costs thousands of dollars and it is not yeah. covered. It is considered an abortion, which we know under federal governments do not always provide access or it's not covered under insurance and can be denied by private insurance. Thank you, federal government. And can you imagine if you're one of these people who can't afford that and so you're forced to give birth? And there, for it kills yeah. you because you cannot afford that abortion, medically induced abortion, mm-hmm. and then or have to go into thousands of dollars of debt. Yeah, for a tragedy or something that was traumatic. Yeah, yeah. There's there's so much to unpack there. I feel like every quote we're reading is like, oh, we could talk all about this. Here's another quote. Looking back after years of feeling comfortable choosing whether or not to wear a bra, I can remember what a momentous decision this was 30 years ago. Women stripping their bodies of unhealthy and uncomfortable restrictive clothing, bras, girdles, corsets, garter belts, etc., was a ritualistic, radical reclaiming of the health and glory of the female body. Females today who have never known such restrictions can only trust us when we say this reclaiming was momentous. I wanted to put that in there because I've seen a lot of stuff lately about the death of the bra. And I know we've talked a lot about how for you and I, like I remember once I tried to leave the house in high school without a bra on and my parents were like, no, (laughs) no. And I was like, what, why? And they didn't really want to talk to me about it, but they refused to let me leave. (laughs) I find that so funny because I'm the same way. I still have this shame factor. So I'll still wear a bra. Uh, As I'm getting Mm -hmm. older, they're starting to be a lot more dangly uh, and not in a good way. (laughs) So like I, I get... Like wanting to put myself together in a little bit. Um, I'm by the way, I'm actually doing this on on yeah, the Skype is. call for Annie. Uh-huh. But 
Like, yeah, well, like, people know breasts exist. I don't understand yeah. why we are so, like, there's so many things to this point that I'm like, and if we're not showing them off naked, I mean, that's a whole different conversation. If I'm not going shirtless, it's still covered just because it is in a different shape than you are comfortable with. That, that again, holds to right. a standard of, like, this is beauty to you. And so if I make you uncomfortable because I've existed, I have nipples, I guess, I don't know. Yeah. Why does this so matter? Sexualized. Right. To the yeah. point that I'm like, this should be more of a shame for me if I'm trying to look to put together than for you. So I don't get it. If I'm not, right. then why are you? Don't be getting me wrong. <laughs> I did have a moment of like, I, I still, if I can go without a bra, I absolutely will. Just because mm-hmm. it's itchy and I'm tired and I just want everything to hang out. But every now and again, <laughs> because mm-hmm. the way my boob folds and it gets sticky and sweaty, I'm like, maybe I need some yeah, a piece of cloth sure. underneath that. <laughs> That's a whole different uh, conversation. No, you know I what hear saying? you. It's a whole different conversation. I hear you. But I did, mm-hmm. I did think about that whole, like, how uncomfortable clothing were. And we were, we've talked about mm-hmm. the ridiculousness of clothes and sometimes how it was dangerous. Man, how liberating that was for that movement. The whole different conversation. Mm-hmm. And then Hux goes on to write, The clothing and body revelations created by feminist interventions let females know that our flesh was worthy of love and adoration in its natural state. Yeah. Nothing had to be added unless a woman chose further adornment. Again, we've talked about this before. Initially, she writes, capitalist investors in the cosmetic and fashion industry feared that feminism would destroy their business. They put their money behind mass media campaigns, which trivialized women's liberation by portraying images which suggested women were big, hyper-masculine, and just plain old ugly. In reality, women involved in feminist movements came in all shapes and sizes. We were utterly diverse. And how thrilling it is to be free to appreciate our differences without judgment or competition. And I also thought about that too, because for some, feminism is to wear something as sexy as they want and not to be judged by it. But yet, we're Mm -hmm. still judged by it. Yes, and there's a quote about this. Girls today are often just as self-hating when it comes to their bodies as their pre-feminist counterparts were. While the feminist movement produced many types of pro-female magazines, no feminist-oriented fashion magazine appeared to offer all females alternative visions of beauty. To critique sexist images without offering alternatives is an incomplete intervention. Critique in and of itself does not lead to change. Indeed, much feminist critique of beauty has merely left females confused about what a healthy choice is. As a middle-aged woman gaining more weight than ever before in my life, I want to work at shedding pounds without deploying sexist body self-hatred to do so. I can relate so hard to all of that. Yep. Yes. Yep. Yep. And we've talked about that a lot. Yeah. And then also the issues of class um, and this whole idea of the issues of privileged women getting more attention. That's something else that hooks talked about a lot. Um, Here's a quote. Privileged class white women swiftly declare their, quote, ownership of the movement, placing working class white women, poor white women, and all women of color in the position of followers. It did not matter how many working class white women or individual black women spearheaded the women's movement in radical directions. At the end of the day, white women with class power declared that they owned the movement that they were the leaders and the rest as merely followers. Parasitic class relations have overshadowed issues of race, nation, and gender in contemporary neocolonialism. And feminism did not remain aloof from that dynamic. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and then there's a whole section that was really interesting about globalism and American women believing that they know better as kind of part of that and kind of American, largely white feminism being very almost paternalistic, (laughs) which is funny, uh, but being like, no, you're not doing it right. Right. (laughs) Yeah, that they they had this ownership uh, as well. But it's Mm -hmm. kind of, it is. Isn't that the way that we have this cyclical thing where they see a movement and they take it on, create it for their Mm -hmm. own and say, this is the only right way. And when things kind of fall apart, they get very defensive and we have this whole conversation. Betty Friedan, she brings up her uh, feminine mystique and just kind of the point of it all. And she was a feminist icon, but then she was also a white feminist. And in that conversation of like, who was she really perpetuating uh, this movement for? And it it was very, like she, and again, Hooks is a much, nicer about it than I'm being, but in, in that, like, this is this is how it's going about and who holds the standards and what we see the standards, but they are also the ones that f***ed up these standards. And th- this is what we <laughs> see as the bad yep. feminist today and people say they don't want to be that feminist. So, like, right. she does say that, both, those both things, so I thought it was interesting. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and she writes on about the workplace, coming from a working-class African-American background where most women I knew were in the workforce... I was among the harshest critics of the vision of feminism put forth by reformist thinkers when the movement began, which suggested that work would liberate women from male domination. More than 10 years ago, I wrote in Feminist Theory from Margin to Center, to quote she said from that book, the emphasis on work as a key to women's liberation led many white women activists to suggest women who work were already liberated. They were in effect saying to the majority of working women, feminist movement is not for you. Most importantly, I knew firsthand that working for low wages did not liberate poor working class women from male domination. And I feel like that is such a huge... Yeah, it, working for low wages gives no one freedom. They, mm-hmm. We know it perpetuates this whole system of them staying uh, in a lower class, not being able... This whole bootstrapping bullshit, it's not yeah. real. We know this. We've talked about this. Our listeners, y'all, y'all already know this, but the fact mm-hmm. of the matter is, it wasn't acknowledged at that point in time and saying, "Well, you got what you wanted. You can make your own job and make your own decisions." This is not making your own decisions. This is doing what you have to do to make ends meet. Yeah, yeah, to survive. And we have we've been working on a project that we'll talk about eventually, where we discussed a lot of issues where it's like this kind of fight comes up over and over again of work being the end-all, be-all in a capitalist system and how that's still a problem. Like, you can make strides, but we still have to keep in mind that system is not really setting us up to succeed. Right. <laughs> not a lot of us, anyway. Right. And I did find this interesting. Hooks touches on the mistake of blaming feminism for forcing women to work, uh, which I thought was really interesting because I think I've heard that argument as well of like, well... I just want to stay at home and raise children. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I feel like right. there was this judgment they that people have felt of, well, if I don't have a job, then I guess I'm not feminist, which is just another misconception. Right. And then Hooks also touches a lot on race and gender. Quote, no intervention changed the face of American feminism more than the demand that feminist thinkers acknowledge the reality of race and racism. All white women in this nation know that their status is different from that of black women, women of color. They know this from the time they are little kids watching television and seeing only their images and looking at magazines and seeing 
only their images. They know that the only reason non-whites are absent and visible is because they're not white. All white women in this nation know that whiteness is a privileged category. The fact that many white females may choose to repress or deny this knowledge does not mean they are ignorant. It means that they are in denial. Oof. And we've been talking yep. about this, especially when it comes to television and who is being represented and who isn't. You and I have talked about this a lot. I've talked about my own uh, conversations and trying to find any person of color, A, be as being the main character or not being seen as a comic relief or the sexy sidekick in mm-hmm. itself and me not having any representation until even recently of any type of real actual uh, Asian women in white culture. Of course, if I was in Korea, it'd be a whole different story. But honestly, the thing I remember, there's very little I remember a lot about in Korea. The things that I remember watching TV was a Michael Jackson and Madonna. Those were my two, pro- I remember seeing concerts of them and performing, and I wanted to be them. So even in Korea, I was inundated with white culture. Not, Michael Jackson's not white culture, but you know what I mean, like American yeah, culture. Yeah. And mm-hmm. being what that was and what was good and what wasn't good. And so, like, that's such a huge conversation because that's kind of the conversation that we had with people who did represent these marginalized communities. And they're like, oh, well, you know, they're not being ignored. They asked me to, and this was a great role, so I took it. Like, it's just, and it was so insulting of being like, just admit it. You admit that you did not think about your privilege and you really liked this opportunity and you thought it might get you an Oscar. End of story. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Oh, that's a whole thing. Um, Here's another quote. They, being white women, entered the movement erasing and denying difference, not playing race alongside gender, but eliminating race from the picture. For grounding gender meant that white women could take center stage, could claim the movement as theirs, even as they called on all women to join. The utopian vision of sisterhood evoked in a feminist movement that initially did not take racial difference or anti-racist struggle seriously did not capture the imagination of most black women, women of color. And that is... Throughout our book club, we've heard that over and over again. That makes absolute sense. And it's been a it's been a problem. It's been a problem. And I'm glad we're discussing it because it still is a problem. Right. It's yeah. kind of that same narrative of uh, men trying to understand rape victims and sexual assault victims by saying, I have a daughter, I have a wife. Yes. Um, uh, but it's yeah. that same trope. It's like you don't consider mm-hmm. it until it's too it's personal to you. So when it becomes personal exactly. to you is when you have a black partner or a person of color, sure. which I've heard yep. a lot, which I, I want to punch somebody. Mm-hmm. If someone used me as their token to say, I understand because I ha- yeah. I'm dating a person of color— that infuriates me. Mm-hmm. I want you to understand it. I do. And I know we have to have a, have a starting point. So I get that. Mm-hmm. But the tokenism in that, and that it takes you that long to find empathy mm-hmm. is really exhausting and heartbreaking for me. And yeah. I know good intentions. Got it. Got it. But this is also uh-huh. what we talk about, white feminism, good intentions. But because it doesn't affect their narrative, their life, they exclude it. And that's problematic. And that this is that conversation, too, in that very level. Like, you can't even, you can't even include that. You can't even hear that, um, which is why it's important to have people of color at the table once again, which, by the way, is a whole conversation you and I need to have because you and I have been going back and forth about how we're struggling with that phrase at the table. Yeah. Y'all. Right. Yeah. And then I just actually recently yeah. <laughs> seen a TikTok video where they talk about, but who made that table? And you're like, oh, God. Right. 
Right. That's a whole other right, point. Right, right. Anyway, yeah. but this is that same conversation of that. Of like, it takes that much for people to realize why it's problematic and it shouldn't have to be. Exactly. And then Hooks had a really interesting bit on patriarchal violence Oof. and like how the patriarchy, yeah, is, is like hurting, physically hurting people. But on top of that, talking about women and do committing those violence and they are yes. following the patriarchal violence by being the ones that commit the violence. And she talks a lot about child abuse. And mm-hmm. as, a, as a former child abuse investigator, I was like, yup. On point, on point, on point. Yeah. Uh, what were we talking about? Why does it come through? And then also how it's perpetuated by the matriarch. Even though it's a matriarch who is head of the family, they are still perpetuating patriarchal violence, misogynistic ideals sure. into their children because that's what they know and the internalized misogyny they have. Whew, it was a whole yeah. breakdown. It was, it was. Um, there was also a breakdown of how kind of the anti-feminist movement or the the propaganda against feminism used a lot of homophobia, the whole idea like all feminists are lesbians and that equals bad, I guess. Yeah. It's also just incorrect, but in right. that kind of context, you like it women equals now, bad. You're a feminist? Sure. Right. I've always mm-hmm. loved women. I don't, I don't know what I'm about. <laughs> yeah, sure. In what way are we talking here? Yeah, mm-hmm. and she talks about feminist masculinity, which she writes, as often the case in revolutionary movements for social justice, we are better at naming the problem than we are at envisioning the solution. We do know that patriarchal masculinity encourages men to be pathological and narcissistic, infantile, and psychologically dependent on the privileges, however relative, that they receive simply for being born male. Many men feel that their lives are being threatened if these privileges are taken away as they have structured no meaningful core identity. This is why the men's movement positively attempted to teach men how to reconnect with their feelings to reclaim the lost boy within and nurture his soul, his spiritual growth. No significant body of feminist literature has appeared that addresses boys, that lets them know they can construct an identity that is not rooted in sexism. Um, I don't know if that's still the case. I think there might be a book now about the uh, young boys, how to raise young boys. I've seen a lot. Yeah, I've seen a lot lately of discussion about this. I know Glenn Doyle talked about it in her book. Mm -hmm. But I I recently have seen a lot of, like, you should not just be raising feminist girls. You should be raising... Right. Like, this just isn't for girls. Right. Um, So I I believe you're correct. It's definitely a hot topic of conversation right now. Right. Um, And it makes sense as as we want to break down, like kind of teaching, again, talking about consent and talking about uh, Mm -hmm. sexual assault. We don't need to put all the onus on to women. This should be taught to boys. Yeah. Abortion is the same, right? Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And then a couple of quotes about sexuality here. Quote, it evokes fear within me just to imagine a world where every time a female is sexual, she risks being impregnated. To imagine a world where men want sex and women fear it. In such a world, a desiring woman might find the intersection of her desire and her fear. And then here's another. In the bedroom, many men want a sexually desiring woman eager to give and share pleasure, but ultimately they did not surrender the sexist assumption that her sexual performance, i.e. whether or not she wanted to be sexual, should be determined by their desire. While it was fun to do it with willing, excited, liberated females, it was not fun when those females declared that they wanted a space not to be sexual. Often when that happened, heterosexual men made it clear that they would need to look elsewhere for sexual release, an action which reinforced the reality of continued allegiance to a sexist paradigm of ownership in all female body, as well as their holding to the notion that any female body would suffice. 
Yep. Yeah. Oof. And we kind of talked about this with the asexual book, mm-hmm. and I'm glad we did. But I, she, yeah, she. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Having that like agency and space to be sexual and not be sexual, and it be about the woman, the woman's body, and not just the man's pleasure. Yeah. Um, here's another quote. What knowing powerful, caring lesbians taught me as a girl, a lesson that has continued, is that women do not need to depend on men for our well-being and our happiness, not even our sexual bliss. This knowledge opened up a world of possibility for women. It offered choice and options. We will never know how many millions of women stay in relationships with dominating sexist males simply because they cannot imagine a life where they can be happy without men, whether they are satisfied sexually and emotionally with the men in their life or not. If any female feels she needs anything beyond herself to legitimate and validate her existence, she is already giving away her power to be self-defining her agency. Lesbian women inspired me from childhood on to claim the space of my own self-definition. And we've talked about that a lot lately, mm-hmm. even in our Sex in the City episode. Like you don't, just, you don't need that. Like, no. Nope. If you want it, great. But you don't need just, it. Just, it's... just, yeah. Just let it be. Why can't it just be? <laughs> and she continues writing, Romantic love, as most people understand it, in a patriarchal culture makes one unaware, renders one powerless and out of control. Feminist thinkers called attention to the way this notion of love served the interest of patriarchal men and women. It supported the notion that one could do anything in the name of love, beat people, restrict their movements, even kill them, and call it a crime of passion. Plead. I love her so much. I had to kill her. What? Love in patriarchal culture was linked to notions of possession, to paradigms of domination and submission, wherein it was assumed one person would give love and another person receive it. Yeah. That's such a big sentence. That's just a big, like, yeah, it really is. It really, this as this ownership, again, we talked about Mm -hmm. that. One, being one, being together in one, finding the one, again, is an ownership. Yeah. Yeah, very possessive. That whole, like, she's mine. If she won't be mine, then I will kill her. Like, it's another example of that patriarchal violence. Femicide, which we haven't talked about much, uh, which we should come back to because we need to revisit. And I know it's been talked about before, has grown and gotten worse in so many of the different countries, including the U.S., and the allowance of it. But again, that's a whole different conversation. Mm-hmm. And she does talk about spirituality. And Annie, you and I have talked about, we we're going to do an episode about Christianity yes. and how, or just religion in itself and how it affects women mm-hmm. and uh, the feminist, uh, the misogynistic systems that weigh on women because of religion, just whatever. Mm-hmm. And Hooks writes, early on feminist movement launched a critique of patriarchal religion that has had a profound impact changing the nature of religious worship throughout our nation. Exposing the Western metaphysical dualism, the assumption that the world can always be understood by binary categories, that there is an inferior and a superior, a good and a bad, was the ideological foundation of all forms of group oppression, sexism, racism, etc., and that such thinking formed the basis of Judeo-Christian belief systems. (gasps) Yeah. And she talks in here about colonization with religion. I like, again, I'm just like, oh my God, this is... The intellectual bits and just understanding who we are because of this type of oppression. Yeah, yeah. Again, like this book, I mean, this episode is one of our longer episodes. This book is only 120 pages. She just packed so much in in such a concise manner. Everything. And everything I was like, oh my gosh, we got to talk about this. We got to talk about this. We got to talk about this. (laughs) And we do. We do want to come back and talk about it because that's something that both of us 
have been thinking about. Um, a lot of this is stuff we've been thinking Obviously, about, but specifically yeah. this kind of religious bent uh, is something we've been thinking about. And then the book ends on a vision of the future and kind of, you know, the making more of this education around feminism more accessible and, and you know, raising these feminist children and all this stuff. And clearly, we ha- we think so highly of this book. Yes. If you have not read it, you should definitely check it out. Uh, there's just so much going on and it's so thought-provoking and it's so... Just gets you. Just yeah. gets right to the heart I think of it's, it. It's a great book club read and I hope you mm-hmm. all will pick it up and read it if you haven't already. Mm-hmm. And then come back and listen again and tell us what your perspective is because this is definitely one that should be discussed more and more. And, and I think she came back even though she had already been talking about these things and she's already lectured about these things to reformat something that's coming back to question. And again, we're back into a cyclical moment of having to uh, justify why we say feminism is important and, again, Mm -hmm. why it has to be defined again. Not redefined, but defined again with more inclusivity because of this. And I think she does a great job in highlighting that. Mm -hmm. I want to read it again. Maybe we need to do this as a yearly visit. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Ooh, we could. Yeah, and bringing in more people to have discussions about it because it's such an important conversation, especially it's mm-hmm. spot on, obviously, for our show, but it is a good introduction and in that whole yes. consciousness raising in mm-hmm. what is feminism and why is it important. Exactly. Totally agree. So go check it out if you haven't already. Please let us know your thoughts and your suggestions on what our next book pick should be. You can email us at stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at Stuff I'm Never Told You. Thanks as always to our super producer, Christina. Thank you, Christina. Yes. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I'm Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 